Well, God's richest blessings to each of you again this evening, and welcome to God's house. It's so good to be gathered together again to study God's Word together. I believe the Lord has some good things for us tonight, and I'm looking forward to looking into that this evening. I trust you had a good day. I had a very good day. I enjoyed uh, relating to the children at Berea this morning, grades one through six. That was a a real joy for me, and uh, then enjoyed a, a good lunch and some visiting with Brother Philip, and went up the road to Linville, John Deere Drive, and had a good supper there with uh, Franklin and Carol and some family, and just a good time of fellowship. So God bless each of you who uh, made my day pleasant. And along the way, also did some some studying and taking care of a little a little business from away as well. So a busy day, but a good day. A blessed day. You know, throughout the Bible, over and over, we come face to face with the call of the gospel. We believe that, the, that God's word is alive. It's powerful. It pierces our hearts. Sometimes challenging us. Sometimes comforting us. Sometimes convicting us. But it always calls us. <laughs> God's Word is always calling us. There is a a holy tension as we read God's Word, as we hear God's Word. And it, it never allows us to feel comfortable with where we are. But it's always calling us to a deeper place with the Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with Him. And so the Gospel of Jesus Christ is constantly calling sinners to salvation and saints to a deeper, more intimate relationship with the Savior. And so here we are, the end of February, we're we're inside the door of 2024. And as we look into this year, uh, there's a lot of things that we're uncertain about. There's a lot of things that, that we don't know. Maybe we're even a bit fearful about certain things. We may wonder what God has in store for us. But dear people, there's one thing that we can be sure of. And that is that God wants us to come closer to Him so we can go deeper with Him. That is God's desire for each of us as individuals, as a congregation, as a body of believers. He's calling us once again tonight as we look into His Word Come deeper. Come deeper. Come away from yourself. Come away from your struggles. Come away from the things that weigh you down. And come to me. I will give you rest. Join the yoke with me and find peace. As we look at our text this evening, God is calling us to three areas of growth. And those three areas are fruitfulness, faith, and forgiveness. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 11 for a text this evening. Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin reading at verse 12. Mark 11 verse 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, speaking of Jesus, And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now verse 20. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. 
Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Lord, as we look into these verses this evening, we ask for your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds, our hearts. Father, show us in these verses what we need to hear this evening. You know where we are. You know our, our needs. You know where our relationship is with you. And Father, I pray that you would challenge us and call us through your gospel to a deeper place with you. And may we respond with a surrendered heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've chosen this title this evening and we find it in verse 13. Nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. That's what Jesus found when he looked over, when he inspected this fig tree. And dear people, this title is not meant to discourage you. It's not meant to make you feel bad about yourself. But it is meant to cause you to take personal inventory of your life. I wonder what Jesus would find if he would go over your life tonight. If he would get real close to me and, and push back my suit coat and check out my life. What would he find? What kind of thoughts? What kind of aspirations? What kind of longings? What kind of hidden things? It's a little scary, perhaps, isn't it? But I ask you, what do people find when they get to know you? When they push back the leaves of your life, what do other people find? Let's consider the context here of this passage. I believe that's important to us understanding the story here. But this is just several days before Jesus' trial, before His crucifixion. And He had just come through the streets as what we refer to as the triumphal entry. And all the people were cheering. But while all the people were cheering, Jesus is crying. We find this in Luke 19 in His account. No, Jesus is not just choked up. Jesus is sobbing. The crowds are cheering. And Jesus, a grown man, is sobbing. Why is Jesus crying? You see, Jesus had been born and raised with the people. He had grown up among them. They had seen His life. For years now, several years, He had ministered among them. He had taught them the very truths of God. He had repeatedly told them who He was. That Jesus was God incarnate. He had told them that. He was here on a mission from the Father. And He had then proven that with many mighty miracles. He had told them different times why He came. I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm here to bring redemption. I'm here to bring life. I'm the door. By me you find the Father. You find eternal life. He had made this clear over and over in various ways. And yet the response of the religious leaders and the response of the people in general was, was that of rejection. Their attitude was, we will not have this man to reign over us. And Jesus is crying because now it's too late. The window of opportunity is, is being closed. And between sobs, Jesus told the people, if you had known, even you, in this your day, the things which belong to your peace, but now they're hid from your eyes. If you had only known. And then he goes on to predict in pinpoint detail the coming judgment and the complete destruction of Jerusalem, which would be just in a few years. And he said, it's because you did not know the time of your visitation or you didn't recognize God's coming to you. And don't think that the people could have said, 
Oh, yeah, we didn't know. Oh, I wish we would have thought. No. Once again, he had made it clear. You didn't recognize it. It was obvious. And you didn't take the opportunity. You didn't grasp it while you had it. And so that's the setting behind our story. That brings us up to speed to our text here. And our first point is the call to more fruitfulness. The call to more fruitfulness. Notice here that Jesus and his disciples, verse 12, they're coming out of Bethany, they're headed to Jerusalem, and Jesus is hungry. Just notice for a moment the humanity of Jesus that we find in this passage. I find that interesting. First of all, earlier in this passage, we find that the Lord had need of a colt to ride on. The humanity of Jesus. He, he needed a colt to ride on. Now he's hungry, but he's also crying. That's part of this story. He was also sobbing. And then, and then we see as he comes to this fig tree, he didn't have an understanding whether this was going to be a good fruit tree or not. He had to come up closely and look it over. I see the humanity of Jesus portrayed in this passage. But Jesus and his disciples are walking down the road. Jesus is hungry. And he sees this fig tree from afar. Way down the road, he sees this fig tree. What attracted him to the fig tree? It was the leaves. The fig tree had leaves. Now, you know, we can look at this verse, verse 13, and we can, we can stop, start to feel sorry almost for the fig tree. I mean, wasn't Jesus' judgment, wasn't that rather severe? I mean, it didn't have any figs. But then the, then the verse says that it wasn't time for figs. And then he curses it. And we're like, wow, isn't that a little harsh? Well, I confess there's some things we don't understand completely about this. However, there's a few things that, that I have understood that help me. I understand that in, in that climate, that variety of fig tree, that the fruit would appear first. And then the leaves. And so if you saw leaves, it was a given that there should be fruit there. Also, I understand that the harvesting usually happened at Passover, around Passover. Now, we're getting close to Passover. We're just a few days out. So there's probably some figs that are ready, but generally speaking, it wasn't quite time to harvest yet. So maybe that helps shed a little light on it so uh, you can rest a bit easier. It, it helps me, and there's still some things, obviously, we don't understand, perhaps. But once again, Jesus was attracted to this fig tree because of the leaves. If it had leaves, there should be fruit. And so from a distance, this tree had the appearance of life. From a distance, it had the appearance of, of health and fruitfulness. And so Jesus came to enjoy the fruit. But when he got close and when he examined, he realized that he had been deceived. Essentially, what we have here is a picture of false advertising. I mean, there were leaves, but there were no figs. I mean, the leaves are saying, there's figs here. Come and eat your figs. But, but there were no figs. I quote, there were many trees with only leaves, and these were not cursed. There were many trees with neither leaves nor fruit, and these were not cursed. This tree was cursed because it professed to have fruit, but did not. And I say, oh, how God hates pretense. There was the pretense of fruit, and yet there was none. Now, I want you to notice what the disciples saw when they passed by the next morning. Verse 20, we read here, and in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Now Mark, Mark mentions this in his gospel, from the roots. Where it's, noted, uh, where it's noted in another gospel, we don't see that. I find this interesting, and I find it significant. <laughs> this fig tree was dried up from the roots. What is the significance there? 
What is being portrayed there? You see, dear people, it is through the roots of a tree that the nutrition is received. It's through the roots of a tree that life and health is maintained. It's through the roots of the tree, ultimately, that the fruit is born. It comes through the roots. The roots are the heart of the matter. And so when we see a a tree that has no fruit, our mind may go to the health of the tree. And then from there, our mind may go to the nutrition or the diet of the tree. What is that tree feeding on? What is the soil like? What are the dynamics? And from there, our mind will go to the location, perhaps, of the tree. Where is that tree planted? Where is that tree planted? Now, you understand, dear people, that we're really not talking about fig trees tonight. Jesus really wasn't talking so much about fig trees. Uh, Just like children, you remember last night, the children's meeting about the wise man and the foolish man? Jesus wasn't talking so much about, about carpentry. He wasn't talking so much about building houses. He was talking about our lives, right? Right? And the same this evening. Jesus was using this fig tree to illustrate the fruitlessness of Israel, the fruitlessness of God's people. After all that He had done for them, after all that He had revealed to them, yet they had failed to be fruitful for God. And He didn't take it lightly, because in this story, we see a vivid picture of His judgment. You know, when a person cools off or dries up spiritually, it usually happens from the roots. Now, we like to point to the symptoms. We like to say, well, he's just too wrapped up in sports. Or, she's been watching movies. Or, they just... They are too addicted to their smartphones. Or, you see their casual attire? Yeah. We like to point to the symptoms. But dear people, the heart of the matter is much deeper than that. It's where is that person planted? What is that person feeding on? What place does the Word of God have in their life? That is the heart of the matter. Psalm 1, I'd like to think about this for just a moment as I think about this thing of fruitfulness and where we're planted, how that makes all the difference. But we read there that the blessed man, he delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That is central. So that is verse 2 of Psalm 1. Verse 1 talks about his friends. Verse 3 talks about his fruit. But verse 2 is the foundation. Flowing out of that foundation comes his friend's choices and comes his fruit. It's made clear. Those things, I say, flow out of what is central in his life. But the blessed man... The man who is delighting in the law of the Lord. The man who is thinking about God's word day and night. The man who orders his life in accordance to the word of God. Then has the wisdom and the understanding to make wise decisions concerning his associations. Concerning his friends. There's places he will not go. There's people he will not associate with. But on the other side, there is a fruitful person. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. It's a beautiful picture of fruitfulness. Why is that? Because that is flowing out of his foundation of being planted in God's word. Truth. Surrounding himself with truth. A culture of truth. And that person is... Fruitful. 
They're always bearing fruit. They're prosperous. Once again, the foundation of God's Word and then flowing out of that as friends and fruit. As I think about fruitfulness, I'll just say this. You know, I'm very grateful for our Anabaptist culture. I'm very grateful for the Mennonite heritage uh, that has been passed down to me. I think it is a biblical way of life, and I praise God for that. But I wonder sometimes if we find ourselves hiding behind the leaves, as it were, of our Mennonite culture. It can be easy to sort of hide behind the leaves of our Mennonite culture. You know, it's pretty easy to look okay from a distance. People see us, and actually people are attracted to us because of how we look and how we go about life. That's attractive. People are drawn into our circles by seeing us from a distance, reading about us, seeing some pictures. But I ask you, what do they find when they get close to you? When they get close and start pushing back the leaves of, the, of your life, do they find a life that is marked by the fruit of the Spirit? Or do they find nothing but leaves? God help us. It has everything to do with the place of God's Word. God is calling us as individuals and as a congregation to more fruitfulness tonight. Secondly, then, we have the call to greater faith. The call to greater faith. We find this in verses 22 through 24. Jesus' response to the disciples when they said, Wow, look at that fig tree. It's completely withered away from the roots. And, and I, can, I can imagine them looking around at each other and just... Just amazement. You remember we came by here yesterday and Jesus, look at that thing. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. When I think about the call to greater faith, my mind goes to the response of the disciples in Luke chapter 17. When Jesus told them that it is always our responsibility to forgive another. Do you understand that? It is always your responsibility to forgive someone who has wronged you. Even, Jesus said, if he wrongs you seven times in a day, it's your responsibility to forgive them. And the Bible says that the disciples were appalled and they said, increase our faith. Increase our faith. That was more than they could, <laughs> could handle. <laughs> I also think of the story in Mark chapter 9. I would think of the response of the father. This son was being tormented with an evil spirit. And the disciples weren't able to heal him. And so they brought this tormented son to Jesus. And Jesus said, oh, faithless generation." How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. We see the exasperation there in Jesus. And so the boy was brought. And Jesus said, how long has this been going on? And the dad said, from a little, from a little boy, he's been dealing with this. Can you imagine the, the agony of this father? And the disciples who were out preaching, calling people to repentance, uh, they couldn't heal him. Why not? They asked Jesus privately later. And Jesus said, This kind cometh forth by nothing except prayer and fasting. I want you to know, dear people, that there is a spiritual darkness out there. There are battles out there that cannot be won without prayer and fasting. I didn't say just prayer. I said prayer and fasting. It's a weapon that is not used very often in our modern-day Christianity. Why not? Because it's uncomfortable. Because we get hungry. 
duh. It's about sacrificial living. Anyway, they brought this boy to Jesus. And Jesus told the father, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And the father of that child cried out, and I I feel myself in the cry of that father. And he said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I feel like that father many times. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Dear people, we need a greater faith in God in this year of our lives. I think God would like to do some great things in our lives. I think God would like to do some great things in our churches. He would like to do some things that that seem to be impossible. But where's our faith? Where's our faith? Jesus said, have faith in God. And the literal rendering there is, have the faith of God. Wow. Have the faith of God. Have a strong faith. Have the strongest kind of faith. Have a strong belief that God is able to accomplish even the most difficult things with infinite ease. Have full confidence in God. Constantly depend upon Him. And as we consider this call to greater faith, we need a greater faith in the presence of problems. And you better believe it. There's going to be problems this year. There's going to be problems. We need a greater faith in the presence of problems. You see, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We would like to know what to expect. We would like to see what's down the road. That doesn't take faith. (laughs) Faith is confidently believing in, in what we don't see. See, that's something we can't do. That takes God. Have faith in God. Have the faith of God. The strongest kind of faith. And we're going to need that in this year. Now, Verse 23 says this, Verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Wow. Now, do you believe in a God that can move mountains? Do you? Do you believe in a God that can move mountains? I mean, God created mountains, right? God allows mountains, right? Which is bigger, God or mountains? (laughs) Amen. God is. He's infinitely bigger than mountains are. Uh, Like the old black preacher said, stop telling God what your mountains are and start telling your mountains who your God is. (laughs) Amen. That's right. That's how we need to do it. Uh, I mean... What is bigger anyway? God is. So can He move them? Can God move mountains? And if so, what does it take for God to move mountains? Most likely the Jews understood Jesus to be referring to a mountain as something strong and immovable. A problem that stands in the way. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) A problem that stands in the way. And Jesus said that a key to mountain moving is greater faith. Not more money, not bigger equipment, more faith, greater faith. He said, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. See, not a greater faith than faith itself. Or, or, or a greater faith in your feelings, or a greater faith in yourself. You know, we're not talking about self-confidence, like, you know, we're Americans and we can handle this. <laughs> no, he's not talking about that at all. He's talking about a true faith, a faith that can move mountains of problems, mountains of difficulties, and that kind of faith is founded and grounded in God's Word. In God's promises. Do you believe that? 
And so I ask you this evening, what has God promised you in His Word? Do you fully believe what God has promised in His Word? The Bible says that the battle is the Lord's. Stand back and let Him fight it. Do you believe that? Does your everyday life prove that you believe that? The Bible says that that He will never leave us or forsake us. When we go through the fire, through the water, He will be with us. He will hold our hand. The Bible says that He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Do you fully believe that? You see, God wants us to experience the performance of His promises. But it's only in fully believing that you can fully experience them. He's calling us to believe to a greater faith. And no doubt, many of you have some problems that are in the way tonight. No doubt, many of you have some mountains that you're not sure how you're going to get over or get through. God is able to move those mountains, but it takes faith. Right on the tail of verse 23, and closely connected to it, of course, is verse 24. And I say that as we think here about the call to greater faith, we need a greater faith in the power of prayer. A greater faith in the power of prayer. Verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Or, or believe that ye have received them. That's another rendering. When you pray, believe that ye have received them, and ye shall have them. Now that takes faith. That takes faith. That means that you are coming before God with complete confidence. You are confident that He will answer. You are holding nothing back. That is the faith of God right there. You see, a faith that moves mountains is a faith that's fueled by passionate prayer. Passionate prayer. Now, we believe that prayer changes things, right? I trust that's more than just a plaque on your wall. It is a plaque on some walls. Prayer changes things. Well, amen. We believe that. And although you may not see the exact outcome that you were hoping for, it is impossible, I say, to earnestly pray in the Spirit according to the will of God and not see change. At the very least, you will be changed. You cannot pray earnestly in the Spirit according to the will of God and it not affect you. You will be drawn closer to God through that exercise. Through that discipline. It is a And you know what? That may be all that's necessary. Think about that. I say, if you're the only one that's changed through that that may be all that's necessary. That actually may be the purpose of your prayer. And you just didn't know it. In Luke chapter 11, we see the principle of persistence. Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. I call it the principle of persistence. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks the door shall be opened. We also find in Luke 18, that principle of persistence, we read about the persistent widow who kept coming to the judge and nagging the judge until he finally said, okay, I'm so bothered by this. I'll just give her what she wants. And, and Jesus goes on to say, how much more your father will he will give to his elect those who cry to him night and day. I think, too, of the story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. As we think about the power of prayer and how our faith is fueled by passionate prayer. There in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the nation of Judah was facing quite an impossible mountain in the form of three enemy nations that were coming against them. And as they looked at who they were 
how many they were and where they were, Judah realized pretty quickly that, humanly speaking, it was all over. They were toast. And King Jehoshaphat was scared. He actually was. And and all Judah with him. However, his fear drove him to God. It's a powerful example of a godly leader. He could have done many things in the face of fear, but his fear drove him to God. And he called the people together for a time of what? Prayer and fasting. Did I say earlier that there are some battles that can only be won through prayer and fasting? This was one. The people came together and they ended their prayer by saying, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Long story short, they marched a singing army into that battle. And they won that battle without ever lifting a sword. How did they win it? They won it by marching a singing army. And they sang, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. It was an anthem that they commonly sang in the temple worship. Praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. And those three enemy nations were soundly defeated, every single one of them. And at the end of that story... The word around town was not that, watch out for Judah, they're dangerous. No, no. It was, watch out for Judah's God. Don't mess with Judah's God, he'll get you. (laughs) That was the talk around town. The glory went to God. Praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. God took the glory. God. I say not only does prayer fuel our faith, but the other way around as well. Our faith is foundational to powerful prayer. It is. Someone has put it this way, that praying without faith is like a man shooting his gun without a bullet. It makes a lot of noise, but there's just no execution. (laughs) That's prayer without faith. Verse 24 again. Therefore I say unto you what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. I quote, men who have strong and living faith in God, who pray for things agreeable to his will and which he has promised to grant in answer to prayer, may confidently expect in his time and way to receive them. Reminds me of my little son, Colin, who some time ago was really after me for a drone. (laughs) He wanted a new drone. You know, it's one of those things where his older brothers were probably talking about a drone and maybe some boys at church or something, and so he wanted a drone. And he came to me after I had preached on some of these verses at home. He said, Daddy, he was all excited, like this is going to be Christmas time, man. He said, Daddy, you read in the Bible that if you pray believing for for anything, that God will give it to you. And, And he said, I'd really like that for a drone. (laughs) bless his heart I said well buddy I said you're missing one thing I said you need to go to 1st John chapter 5 and it says there that if we ask for anything according to God's will (laughs) he hears us and and I just don't think that that's God's will right now for you (laughs) oh man (laughs) I think he understood. He got over it. You know, there's a a number of prerequisites in the Bible, actually, for powerful prayer. In other words, you can't just pray for any old thing in any old way at any old time, and and God's just going to bow to your, your wishes. It doesn't work that way. But God has requirements for coming to him in prayer with the expectation of powerful results, there are requirements. And we don't have the time to go into that this evening. It would, be, it would be a great study. There's a lot in Scripture about that. But certainly, faith in God is foundational to that. But it's interesting, dear people, that that's not all. Our relationship with others comes into play. It does. 
our relationship with others. An attitude of forgiveness toward others is paramount in experiencing the power of prayer. So not only does it go this way, but it goes this way as well. And that leads us to our last point for the evening, and that is the call to heartfelt forgiveness. God is calling us tonight. God is calling us this year to grow in our understanding and in our practice of forgiveness. Heartfelt forgiveness is not simply an act, dear people, but it must be an attitude of our heart. It must be a way of life. Heartfelt forgiveness is not just something we do one time, but it must be something that we It's a conscious decision. Yes, I've been hurt. I choose to forgive. Lord, help me to forgive. Dear people, Jesus makes it clear in these verses, verses 25 and 26, that our willingness to forgive is directly related to how much we value our own redemption. Let's read these two verses again. Verse 25, And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Our willingness to forgive is directly related to how much we value our own redemption. And so I ask you this evening, what does your redemption mean to you? Well, the answer to that question is made clear by the attitude that you have towards those who have wronged you. What is your attitude towards those? All of us have been hurt. All of us have experienced pain from another. Welcome to life, right? <laughs> okay. Relationships can be painful. Maybe not always intentional hurt or intentional wrongdoing, but yet in the run of life, we end up hurting each other. What is your attitude towards those who have hurt you? Those who have wronged you? And you might say, well, Josh, you don't understand how badly I've been hurt. You don't understand the pain that I have experienced in my life. No, I don't completely. I don't. You might say, you know, I don't think that Jesus would expect me to do that. I mean, after all. Really? But what has God done for you through his son, Jesus Christ? God done for you. The Bible says when we were yet sinners, when we were, in fact, enemies, Christ died. The Bible says that he has removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says that he will remember our sins no more. The Bible says that that God is not a patty slapping kind of God. Oh, I got you there. Hey, you messed up there. Oh, whoa, whoa. That's not the kind of God we serve. He's a God that does not mark iniquities. In fact, in fact, if he were, who could stand? No one. No one could stand. No one would have a chance to live under a God like that. Our God is not like that. But there is forgiveness with him. Oh, forgiveness. You see, heartfelt forgiveness is a choice that you must make. It's a choice that you must make. Turn back to Matthew chapter 18. We must read a few verses here in this story. We refer to it sometimes as the parable of the unmerciful servant. But we have a very clear understanding as we look at this passage of how God views unforgiveness. And he doesn't view it lightly. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? That should be plenty, Lord, right? Way over and above. 
But Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. In other words, keep on forgiving. Keep on forgiving. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. Here was a debt of maybe millions of dollars. A staggering amount. Impossible, you would say. Verse 26, And the servant therefore fell down and worshipped and saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Remember that phrase. And forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him an hundred pence or just a few bucks. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into the prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were sorry, very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt. Pointing back to those millions of dollars, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant? even as I had pity on thee. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentor so he should pay all that was due unto him. Now listen, dear people, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. And yet, and yet many people, many professing Christians don't seem to understand that. Listen, you had a life sentence over you that spelled eternal death. You had a sin. Your sin, in fact, separated you from the presence of a loving God. You had a debt hanging over you that you could never pay, dear people, and Jesus paid it all with His very lifeblood. The Bible says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took the pain and punishment that we deserved. He forgave the whole debt and he set us free. Does that mean anything to you? What does your redemption mean to you? And I say evidently it doesn't mean very much to many professing Christians today because they struggled to forgive dad for what he did or mom or that brother or sister, or someone in the church. You see, when we, when we refuse to forgive others, we are carelessly disregarding the staggering price that was paid for our redemption. We're just sort of casting it off like it was nothing. When we refuse to forgive others, we are revealing that we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We are holding others to a standard that we feel like we are far above. This doesn't apply to me. But you better pay it. You need to apologize to me. It's been said, he, do, he who does not forgive burns the bridge over which he himself must cross. For to be forgiven, he must forgive. One of the most meaningful stories of forgiveness that I've read about is the story of Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy. Perhaps some of you know this story. But Corey and her family were Jews who suffered horribly there in the time of the Holocaust. And Corey and her sister Betsy spent quite some time in a Nazi concentration camp. And they suffered severely under one of the most cruel, heartless German guards. 
And this guard humiliated them, degraded them, treated them very immorally. And sometime after they were released from the concentration camp, Corey was sharing her story at a service. And after she shared her story and the service was over, she was greeting people in the front of the church. And all of a sudden, she caught the glimpse of a face walking down the aisle. And in a moment, she realized that was that horrible, heartless German guard. And that man walked up the aisle, walked right up to Corey, and he held out his hand. He said, will you forgive me? And everything inside of her screamed, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I could never forgive you for that. And yet in that moment, she cried out to God, Jesus, help me. Help me. And somewhat woodenly, mechanically, she thrust out her hand. And she says in that moment, something miraculous happened. She felt this current that started in her shoulder and moved down through her arm into their embraced hands. And she said, brother, I forgive you. She says, I have never felt the love of God so intensely as I felt in that moment. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that prisoner was you. Yeah, discover it was you. You know, as Jesus was being nailed to the cross, what did He say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, as the rocks were being hurled at him, he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And we think we've been wronged. Yeah, we think we've been wronged. People, freely we have received. Therefore, freely we are called. And so God is calling us tonight uh, to areas of growth in our lives. He's calling us to more fruitfulness. He's calling us to greater faith. He's calling us to heartfelt forgiveness. And I'm so thankful for the mercy of God that has not produced the fruit that I should. God has, has allowed us to be raised, to grow up, to fellowship in an environment that is saturated with the Word of God. We have been given so much. We have a Christian church. We have Christian friends. Many of us have Christian businesses. We have godly heritage. We have so much. We have the Word of God freely. We are without excuse. And yet too often, we are not taking advantage of what we have. Our human nature says, I will not have this man to reign over me. And yet God is calling us to areas of growth. God is calling us to a deeper walk with Him. How's that call sounding in your ears tonight? Perhaps it sounds a bit differently to each one of us. Perhaps God has His finger on different areas of our life, depending who we are tonight. But I know that through the power of the gospel, He's calling us. Let's listen and let's respond and surrender to Him.